0: Rural hospitals by their nature serve sparsely populated areas, but some also serve geographically isolated areas where the population is small and the distance to available healthcare options is too far to traverse for most basic healthcare needs. So, how do isolated rural hospitals ensure that their community has access to complete and comprehensive healthcare services?
1: With bold leadership, a growth mindset, and diligent perseverance.
0: I'm Rachel Lott.
1: And I'm JJ Hodshire.
0: And this is Rural Health Rising.
1: Well, welcome to episode 42 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital.
0: And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development.
1: Well, Rachel, we know that rural hospitals serve typically smaller populations. But today we're talking about rural hospitals that are also more geographically isolated.
0: That's right. We are talking with someone today from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where healthcare is often not as accessible as it is in other areas of the state.
1: That's right. And one of my favorite places as well, Rachel. So our guest today is David John, president and CEO of War Memorial Hospital in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, David.
2: Thanks, JJ. It's great to be here.
0: So to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and War Memorial?
2: Well, from a personal perspective, I was born and raised in Manistique, Michigan, the one with the Q and the UP, not with the double E's um, below the bridge. Um, I uh, thought I wanted to be an electrical engineer, so I went to Michigan Tech, um, Hmm. and then chemistry and calculus told me otherwise, so I ended (laughs) up getting a... uh, uh, degree in accounting uh, business administration went on to work for then Marquette General Hospital in the accounting department for a year and a half to two years and at that time my uh, hometown hospital the CFO um, uh, tragically uh, passed away um, and I was 24 at the time and I said well maybe I should apply for the CFO job in, in at Schoolcraft Memorial and I I did, and I got the job, and uh, six months later, um, the CEO got let go, and so I went to the board chair, and I said, I can do both jobs, um, and probably wouldn't happen anywhere but your hometown hospital, and so for 17 years, I was CEO and CFO of Schoolcraft Memorial Hospital, and then uh, the last five years, it got too much to uh, do all, all by myself, so I hired a CFO, but I was there for 22 years. Um, And now I've been at War Memorial for 17 years. So that's, that's a little bit about my personal background.
1: Well, what, you must have started when you were three, David. My goodness. <laughs> well, you know, what a unique opportunity, I guess I'm going to call it. I wouldn't call it an opportunity in today's world uh, to be both the CEO and the CFO, because <laughs> uh, it comes with its uh, challenges, uh, one with each other, especially in light of what's happening with COVID and certainly all the funding. But, you know, one of the things, David, that we do is uh, we talk a little bit on this program about the why. Why? and uh, we start every episode with the why. So we got to know you a little bit better, but also we want to know what is your why? What gets you up in the morning? What motivates you?
2: Well, it's, you know, I I have a uh, um, servant leadership attitude to want to serve our our community, and uh, what better way to serve the community than try to improve the healthcare of the community, because what I tell all our new employees, everybody that comes into our organization is somebody's mother, brother, sister, um, grandmother, grandfather. And how do you want your family members to be treated? And you should treat every patient that you uh, take care of that same way. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know of any any higher calling than to be part of a team that can save lives every day. And, and I don't mean you know that uh, a team of doctors and nurses, because they're they're definitely important to saving lives. But if they don't have all the other people around them, um, you know the as I say the the wind beneath the clinician's wings, the housekeepers, the food and nutrition staff, the the billers, the medical record people, all the people that sit in the background and don't get a lot of credit necessarily for the patient care, but they're just as important as the physicians and the nurses and the clinical staff that uh, that we have in our organization. So the why to me is is being able to improve and impact healthcare in, in your community and access to that healthcare in your community.
1: Wow, with that why, Rachel, I, I think we could close the program right now because servant leadership is so important and, and David's career obviously embodies that. Um, and you know, to your point, Dave, when I look at, my mom was in here not too long ago in our own hospital and uh, she had a wonderful experience. But you know who she talked the most about uh, during her inpatient stay here? She had pneumonia uh, was the housekeepers, uh, the people that it wasn't the dreamy doctor who came in with all of his, you know, fancy words, but it, it was the housekeeper who connected with my mom. And it was when she got her meal tray served to her. So to your point, you know, the wind beneath the wings of our clinicians are those support staff. And I think it's so critical Uh, of what we deal with on a daily basis. How do we touch our patients? And that's a challenge, obviously. And you have a big system uh, where you are now. Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, so can you, for the listener who's listening across the country, uh, talk a little bit about what life is like uh, up there in the UP, um, what makes your community unique, and what major health needs uh, do you have that you're working on right now to meet those needs uh, as a healthcare provider? Well,
2: what what makes us unique is we're we need to be a one-stop shop for, for everything. Um, you know, we have a 49 bed hospital. Um, we also have 51 long-term care beds. Uh, we also have 20 inpatient behavioral health beds. Um, we have a dialysis center. Um, you know, we have a rehab center and, and that serves the whole Eastern UP. So, you know, unlike some areas where you can, Maybe look at uh, certain services and, and say, well, this one doesn't have enough volume or is going to lose money, so maybe we don't stay in that. When you're 90 miles away from a regional referral center, you need to do everything you can to serve the community locally because it's so, so much tied to the business community as well. Um, because, you know, when we can't provide healthcare services in our community patients go to different communities. And when we all go to different communities, we spend money in those different communities. Yeah. And, you know, right. we, we don't have a Home Depot here. We don't have a Lowe's here. We don't have a Meyer. Well, we have a Meijer now, but a, a Menards or some of that. Right. And so we have to be our, our, our business uh, partners, uh, you know, best partner in our community to keep those people local because they're they're gonna spend their resources at the local businesses, which also already are at a disadvantage because they're not the big box stores, and people complain that you know, well, it's too expensive to shop here, and you know, we, we go to the bigger city. So, you know, it's it's unique because a lot of places don't don't uh, rural hospitals aren't able to offer some of those services. And I, I know another one I forgot, but OB. We're, we're the only mm-hmm. OB from Marquette to Petoskey. Mm. So it's uh, Mm. 180 miles to Marquette and there's no OB in the three critical access hospitals that are between us and Marquette. And there's Mm. um, 90 miles to Petoskey and there's no OB in the two critical access hospitals that are between us and and Petoskey. So, you know, if we, if we were to close our OB um, and the, you know, the 350 deliveries a year that we do, what what would happen? What would happen to our community? What would happen to those pregnant women and in the drive that they would have to make across the bridge that uh, not a lot, but sometimes closes because of weather. Um, So we have to really think about that and, you know, how we serve our community in those really high, high medical need areas.
1: So David, you're uh, near the tip of Michigan and we explain that. uh, Michiganders talk about, you know, the hand. So nearest, Community hospital. Where would that be for you?
2: Uh, The nearest one would be the uh, Mackinac Straits Hospital in Saint Ignace, which is a critical access hospital. That's fifty miles away. Okay. Uh, The nearest hospital to us is actually in Canada, which is five miles away. But uh, healthcare doesn't go across borders very well. And uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a it's a two hundred and eighty bed hospital, so it's a significant size hospital. But we. We haven't been able to really do anything with them, and then the pandemic came along and everything shut down, so it probably was good that we didn't have a lot going on, but I, I really would like to see, you know, border communities share healthcare resources, you know, whether it's in Sault Ste. Marie or in Port Huron or in uh, Windsor, um, Detroit area. Um, we're unique in that as well, and, uh, you know, probably 20% of our nurses are Canadian, uh, unfortunately. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, um, the essential workers—they—they um, they were in in that category, so they're able to travel back and cross, back and forth across the border and keep their wow. uh, keep their job here. Because without that, we'd really have a nursing shortage.
1: Oh, no kidding! So do you say good morning, eh? Or isn't that what they do? <laughs>
0: Why are you looking at me like I'm <laughs> Canadian? I have no
1: idea. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's a, that's an incredible um, story that you tell about your community and, you know, really not too unique from what we experience here in Hillsdale, but a little more because of the isolation of where they're located.
0: Right. So speaking of, um, you know, COVID, you mentioned your your nurses being able to come over from Canada during the pandemic when the borders were shut down. But let's talk about COVID. Obviously, it's top of mind for everyone right now, certainly is for us. But what have you experienced at War Memorial? What was it like in the beginning for you guys? And then, you know, what is it like now?
2: Well, in the beginning, uh, it, it we weren't impacted at all. I mean, uh, you know, it, it was like february march of uh 20 uh what was it 2019 or tw-
1: 2020 i guess 2020
2: yeah uh, um and uh you know we weren't impacted at all we didn't have uh hardly any covid cases uh through that summer we didn't have a, a lot of covid cases uh come the fall though um last fall um in that end of october november december range it got pretty tough uh you know, and this was just before the vaccine came out. And uh, I think a high point was we had 23 uh, um, COVID patients in our organization at one time. Now, in March, April, May, we shut everything down like most people did. Um, and we did no elective cases. And, you know, we only did emergencies and that sort of thing. So we had to, we had to furlough some people. And, but we brought them back and we got back to normal probably a, a couple months later. Um, but that that hit us hard in uh, in October, November, December, and uh, you know then the vaccine came out and and uh, you know fortunately or or unfortunately I guess fortunately about eighty percent of our staff are vaccinated now wow. so um,
1: congratulations
2: comu- yeah but the community is only fifty four percent vaccinated and and uh, so we had a little bit of a spike. Uh, again, um, in 2021 in that March, April, May area, then it calmed down again. And then just recently, um, the last three weeks, we got back up to 16, uh, 16 patients, uh, at one time. And, you know, it, it was stressing our system. It was, uh, because of staffing not being at the levels, uh, we, we needed to be at, uh, you know, we, we had to, uh, limit, uh, the number of inpatient surgeries we did each day because, uh, at times, we had six or eight people in the ED waiting for a bed, and there weren't any beds open um, because of the the COVID patients. And uh, you know, it's uh, you know, it's it, it's certainly a uh, <clears throat> a political issue more than it is a a, a data driven issue. And uh, yeah. you know, I can tell you from our our end. Uh, you know, 99% of the uh, patients that have been admitted uh, ha- are not vaccinated. And, uh, yep. um, you know, we're, we're seeing, you know, I, I get the pushback now. Well, look at all the vaccinated people that are getting COVID now. Well, that's true, but they're not sick. They're not just sick. A common mm-hmm. cold. Um, yep. and they're not uh, getting admitted to the hospital and they're not, uh, put on ventilators and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we've also, you know, done a lot in this last surge of uh, the monoclonal antibody infusions. I think we were up to 164 so far this month. And wow. when you look at that, that works very well. But think if we didn't offer that and that 164 mm-hmm. people that could have been admitted in the last month, we we would have really overstressed our system at that mm-hmm. point. So, uh, you know, it, it. I always tell people, you know, we're talking about freedoms in this country and, and you should have the right to choose. And, and that's, act, that's certainly true. Um, but when you're taking your lead from politicians that are trying to yeah. uh, sway you on what your right to choose should be, um, are you really um, offering yourself freedom of choice or are mm-hmm. you following what they're saying? Instead of looking at the data, looking at the results... Uh, looking at uh, that and then making your decision.
1: Well, I tell you what, I think I found a new co-host for our program.
0: Wait, are you <laughs> kicking me out?
1: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, you're you're spot on. Those are the same issues that we're facing, David. Uh, and obviously, you know, it's become so much political rhetoric. Uh, you know, when we look at it, we implemented flu vaccination mandate uh, nearly a decade ago, and we had 99.9% compliance. Uh, Sadly, we're in a community with 40%. Yep. Um, last, right now, day,
0: last when I checked um, last week, it forty forty percent
1: vaccination rate, uh, and so too follows right the population that work at the hospital because they live in the community, and so very low vaccination numbers, and we're we're educating not only our community but also our staff on the importance of this, and uh, you know it's it's a challenge. Um, but one of the things that really struck me that you shared with me uh, just a few minutes ago on the program was the issue of sharing resources among border. Counties among other hospitals. And, you know, believe it or not, there are times I call a fellow CEO of mine and say, Hey, do you have this part, this device? True story. You know, we need to send one of our surgical nurses over or our manager over to pick up a part uh, that we need. And that is very common in small rural hospitals. And I'm sure you've experienced that throughout your long tenure uh, in healthcare. But, you know, one of the things that we have the benefit of in our area, is while we're the only hospital in Hillsdale County, we are surrounded by some pretty big systems uh, and a lot of good partners. Now, there's a few of them that I wouldn't describe as good partners, uh, but there are a few that are really good. And, and I think about a relationship with Borges Ascension, uh, you know, for cancer services and all the things that we get from them in terms of sending our patients there with stroke and, and uh, those types of, of situations where they're flown out of our emergency department. But I have the resources to be able to call on them and say, hey, I need I, I need a urologist. Do you, do you have anybody? I need, you know, cardiovascular. What do you've got? And they're able to provide those resources. But where you're at it's a little more unique. Um, so our ability... To find providers, you know maybe a little more strategically placed in the location of where we are in the state and close to the tri you know tri-state area. Uh, for you, it may be a little difficult a little more difficult to do that. And I really want to get your perspective. Um, so as you're out and about recruiting for specialty and for providers, uh, whether it's just your primary care or if it's a specialty service that you need to offer, how is that recruitment different uh, in rural communities? What have you experienced?
2: Well, it's, it's certainly different. I can tell you that I don't want to say there was anything positive with the pandemic, but we're getting a lot more people interested in coming to Sault Ste. Marie um, from the cities who are physicians um, because they want to get out of those hotspots. And you know, our, our success in recruiting physicians during this last year has probably been the best we've had you know, in the last 15 years. Um, wow, that's so, amazing. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and, but it, it's tough because, uh, for example, we have a lot of single physician specialties. So if you're, if you're like a urologist, we have one urologist, okay? So we have to accommodate to say, we're going to have a urologist here and he's going to have Monday through Friday, um, you know, in the office and in surgery and whatever, but we can't expect them to be on call 24 seven because nobody would come here if they had to be on call 24 seven. You know, even in our OB, we have three OBGYNs. And so they're on call once every three nights. Well, I can tell you this, that they could go to a lot of other hospitals and maybe be on call once a quarter or once right. every 12 weeks or 10 mm-hmm. weeks or whatever, you know, orthopedics we have, we, have, we just got a second one. So, you know, we've been, uh, with our one orthopedic surgeon, we've had to bring in locums to cover a week a month and and every other weekend to uh to give him a break because he can't be on call 24-7 and that costs money and uh, it's not cheap and um so it's a challenge uh, because we don't have the volume to support more specialists in each area but we have a community need to have somebody in that specialty so people don't have to travel out of town Um, and those two things sometimes are uh, you know not not in, uh, in together in, in how you would address things so uh, you know it, it is a challenge but uh, you know primary care we, we're, we're fortunate we've done okay in primary care um, and you know we're over the course of the last few years you know physicians, you know, the physicians that are coming out of school now don't want to be have their own office practice. They don't want to invest the money into an office and all that other stuff, a new house and their debt that they have from school and whatever. so um, they they want to you know they want to be employed by a hospital. and you know I, I know I have some physicians that say, well, you just want to control everything. You want to hire all the physicians and control everything. And I said, no, I don't. no, I, I don't if, if I have my druthers, I would have no physicians employed by the hospital.
1: Right, um, right.
2: But if we did that, we'd have no physicians working in our area. Um, right, true. So, uh, you know, it, it's 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 difficult in, in all rural areas because of that volume. And then, you know, the other thing that, that grinds mm-hmm. me a little bit is, you know, some of these, these quality measures, especially the leapfrog group that, uh, oh. you know, you get a grade from and you're doing the best you can. But all yeah, of a sudden, they, you know, we have a... We have a bariatric surgeon that uh, we're fortunate is originally from Canada and, and was one of two that went through the Harvard Bariatric Fellowship. So Harvard's a pretty wow. high standard, you know, and, and uh, he came <laughs> here and, and uh, you know, we get knocked down on the leapfrog score because we don't do at least 50 um, bariatric surgeries a year. We only do 30. And I, I tell the leapfrog, well, why don't you look at outcomes and quality and complication rates, not volume? Because I can tell you, I'll bet you there's some surgeons that do 100 to 200 bariatric surgeries a year that probably have a 10 or 15% complication rate. And I can tell you that our surgeon has a 0% complication rate. So why don't we get credit for that? But, you know, rural's always on the, on the short end of the stick because of, of volume. And I understand their thinking you know, because I know if I go out and shoot 100 free throws a day, I'm probably going to get better at a free throw shooting. But it doesn't necessarily relate to, you know, surgery, um, especially when you have skilled surgeons that want to work in a rural area.
1: David, I, that is spot on. I, I can reflect uh, my first few weeks here. Uh, the chief quality officer came into my office and uh, said, well, I got some bad news. Our LeapFrog score is a C-. minus." You know, and I just went through the roof. And same situation, you know, small in value for some of our patients that need, you know, cardio care and pulmonology care in the CCU. And you didn't have this one provider who, who had an in value of enough cases. And pretty soon, you know, while our quality scores are great and while our outcomes are even better, we get marked down. And, and that's so frustrating because the community, the bloggers, I call them, I don't know if you have those up there in Sault Ste. Marie, those oh, yeah. are the ones who just love to get on and put our 990 on the, on the table, right, and talk about how terrible our outcomes are. And then they can't argue, you know, our HCAP scores and all that. What they find is this obscure score from LeapFrog. And and then they want to grade you at that C minus. We're not looking at the fact we haven't had lawsuits and the fact that we have great quality outcomes and all of these things. It's a challenge, and and we live it. So being rural, as you know, as attractive as that may seem to some people, uh, comes with the challenges of not always being represented. But one of the, one, I guess, I want to ask you some rapid fire questions real quick. I'll tap into your CFO mind here. Um, what percentage of your payers are Medicaid, Medicare, up there at War Memorial?
2: We are about 45% Medicare and 20% Medicaid.
1: Okay, so similar to uh, our landscape here, which is really most a rule, right? I mean, you probably had that at uh, your previous rule experiences. What percentage of your uh, primary care are employed versus uh, community providers? Would you say half?
2: Um, Almost 95% are employed
1: now. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. That is incredible. So let me ask you about that journey. So when you look at, practice acquisition, which you and I don't like to do that. Right. Right. Because they feel the practice is worth six million and and no offense, but it's dear to them. They've lived it all their life, 30, 40 years. They're building, which needs repairs. Typically, you know, they, they feel it's the top value. And so we go in knowing we need that or our competitor buys it. Right. Um, They want out and we want to be able to have some presence. So, you know, that's a difficult process, though, isn't it? Have you walked your hospital through that journey?
2: Sure. We, you know, we uh, um, the the good news is um, that we've we've never paid for the goodwill of the practice. We paid for the building. Um, fair market value because yeah. Medicare doesn't allow us to pay more than fair market value. And so there's oh, yeah. some arguments over what the appraisal comes in at and, you know, what the physician thinks it's worth and what we say we can pay. Right. Um, but we, you know, then we put them on our, our you know, a salaried uh, position and, uh, you know, provide them the EHR and, you know, we keep their staff uh, intact. And, you know, a lot of times some of the biggest concerns when you bring on a new practice is, with these independent practices, there were usually one or two key people that really drove everything, and so the physicians knew that, and they created, you know, a pretty good paying position for that that office manager per se. Oh yeah. Um, which, when they come into our organization, our office managers don't make that much money, and so you know, how do you deal with that? Uh, and and we've yeah. been able to do it, and you know, uh, we've never gone out and pushed it or pursued it. We've just said, hey. We love it that you're independent, but when the time comes that you think you're done dealing with all this administrative burden and insurance companies and all that kind of stuff, uh, we'd like to be the first person that you come and talk to, um, and and we'll make you a fair offer and 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 a good deal, and and you know uh, your your patients will still be well uh, well taken care of, and uh, you know when you when you get ready to retire, we'll uh, find a replacement to come in and and take care of. Uh, your patients, and so far, that's we're, we're good. I think there's only one primary care physician in the community now that isn't employed by the hospital.
1: You know, David, that's great. Uh, how do you deal with so we have fellow CEOs from across country listen to listen to the podcast. Um, so how, what advice would you give them? Because typically when we go in and purchase practices, you know there is a there is a thought process that, well, now I'm getting paid. Now I'm getting the hospital dollars. It's consistent every two weeks. How do you deal with the productivity measure when you take over a practice?
2: Well, our, our, uh, you know, we have a goal um, for all of our practices. We look at MGMA data. Um, We look at uh, volumes. And we want all our practices to be within 10% of the the 50th percentile. Um, And there are physicians who don't want to practice at that level. And we say, we're fine with you not practicing at that level, but your pay has to be commensurate with your level of practice. So if you're at the 25th percentile in in RVUs, um, you'll be at the 25th percentile of pay based on MGMA data. Now, at the same time, if you're at the 75th percentile of MGMA and volume, then we're comfortable paying you at the 75th percentile uh, for your specialty. So... Um, we, we put that out front to them and say, you know, it's up to you. I mean, you you tell us how you want to practice and, and the pay will be commensurate with how you want to practice. And obviously in today's environment, you know, there, there's a lot of pushback because we all have staffing issues. We can't find enough LPNs. We can't find enough MAs. We can't find enough people to, to assist. And so now we're getting, well, hey, I could have seen this many more patients, but you didn't have enough staff. Yeah. So, you know, I, I shouldn't be only credited with, <laughs> you know, the 45th percentile of visits or RVUs because I could have seen the 60th percentile, but it was because you didn't have the staff is why um, I couldn't see the extra patients. So we're we're dealing with that now and how we're going to, you know, adjust that somehow, because it's true from one hand that that if we didn't have enough staff, it shouldn't be the physician's fault. It's just like, we don't, we don't look at mix of insurance either, you know if you you know we don't say um, you know we're going to look at insurance mix and you know if, and count Medicaid less because they pay less than commercial insurance we we don't care about the insurance we just care that uh, you know your encounters are there yes. um, and you're're you're a productive physician to the to the to the pay level that you're expecting and you know if you but if you come in and you're expecting 90th percentile pay and you're only at 10th percentile encounters it's <laughs> it's just not going to work
1: not going to work well thank you for that explanation
0: So um, getting back to staffing, like you just mentioned, um, you know, having physicians who are saying, well, staffing is the problem and that's affecting the RVUs, um, just like I'm sure the patient experience scores are because of the staff, not the provider, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: Um,
0: But as we know, like you just said, staffing shortages, major concern across the healthcare industry right now. In rural, we probably are a little more familiar with that than our non-rural counterparts who are kind of experiencing it for some of them for the first time in the pandemic. Um But that has obviously exacerbated the already difficult staffing challenges that we have in rural health. So for you, again, also being in a geographically isolated area, what's your staffing looking like right now? And what are you guys doing to manage those challenges?
2: Well, we we have staffing issues throughout the organization, I would say we probably have a 20% vacancy rate now in most every area, um, you know, and, and uh, I think it's it's worse in the um, support staff areas like housekeeping and food and nutrition services, uh, you know, and in the last year, I mean, we, we had to move our minimum start um, up to twelve fifty an hour. Now this year we moved it up to thirteen fifty an hour, and we're probably going to have to move it up higher than that because when you go to, you know, downtown and look at McDonald's and Burger King and Subway and whatever, and they're paying eighteen dollars an hour. You know, we we tell we have way better benefit package, but boy, you know, it, benefits don't matter when you're trying to buy food. And yeah. uh, pay rent and, and that sort of thing. And I really wish, you know, I, I really wish uh, we didn't have the ACA um, that requires us to offer health insurance because I'd be more than happy to put out to our employees with health insurance, this is what you get paid. Without health insurance, yep. this is what you get paid. And they could probably make three or four or five dollars more an hour if At we least. didn't have to pay for, for health insurance. But you know, the, the ACA doesn't allow us to do that. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really real challenge. And, uh, you know, so, um, we're also, you know, offering now, uh, you know, people picking up extra shifts, we'll pay them double time. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to be creative in about everything we do and we, from the hiring process all the way through, um, but you just don't have a lot of applicants, and and uh, you know my worry is that uh, you know when you get desperate, um, you take anybody who comes along, and if it was a uh, hiring market where there are a lot of choices for candidates, uh, you would take uh, the best candidate, and and so um, you know it will impact our H caps. It will impact. Um, our cleanliness scores it will impact mm-hmm. our, our, our quality scores if we don't have top top of the line employees um, you know and 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 so we you know we we're doing a lot of things to try to attract employees here um, the other thing we're we're doing and I don't know if you've ever heard of it but it's called Project Search and uh, basically it's through the intermediate school district and the intermediate school school district approached us about four years ago. And, you know, they have these students who have developmental disabilities um, that can go to high school up to age 25 or 26. And what we have now is a program with them that their last year of high school is done here at the hospital learning skills. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, we've probably had six to eight students come through the program each year um, so far, we have 100% employment of those students, not necessarily at War Memorial, but somewhere in the community. Um, and it's a great program because, you know, you get these people who, who have some developmental disabilities that maybe their parents thought, well, uh, we're going to have to support them their entire life. And now they're learning the skill. Um, they're able to su- be self-sufficient. They're able to earn an income and live on their own potentially. Um, and, and by and large, most of them are really good employees. You know, mm-hmm. they, they very rarely ever miss a shift in work. Uh, they're on time all the time. And, uh, you know, it, it's helped to bolster some of those positions in housekeeping and food and nutrition services and, and supply chain and that sort of thing that uh, maybe we don't have other community members that, uh, you know, would, uh, would take those. And, and for those students, uh, the unemployment rate nationally is 85%. Wow. So to have a program where we have a hundred percent employment rate, not only does it get us some employees, but it all think of the, the uh, perception in the community for all the family members who support that student, and now they have a job and they have uh, um, a place to work, and 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 they have purpose in their life.
1: Absolutely, that's incredible. So Project Search, correct. All right, yep. I'm going to be looking that up.
0: Yeah, that's great. Building that independence for those folks is so important. Um, So to kind of wrap up here, you mentioned that uh, you guys have a good vaccination rate with your staff. Um, But, you know, we are still expecting a federal mandate um, to come down. We're recording this episode on Tuesday. So by Thursday, which would be October 28th, it may or may not have already come out. We don't know. <laughs> um, but, you know, for you guys, what are you doing at War Memorial to prepare for that? Are you comfortable with where you are with your current vaccination rate compared to how many people you think will then get vaccinated? Should the mandate come down as expected? You know, what do you think you're going to see once it's a reality and no longer just a theoretical mandate?
2: Well, I think I think we're going to lose some staff um, that will refuse to get vaccinated Um, and uh, that will only exasperate the staffing shortages. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we we have never mandated the flu vaccine, um, but we would get 90 percent or so, you know, we're still waiting for the mandate to see the rules of the mandate, and right. you know we're we're hearing there's going to be religious exceptions, and you know what's considered a religious exception, and you know we see all the all the issues that you see in the media. the People have already mandated the COVID vaccine, and you know you every day you hear of another hospital, hundred people got furloughed because they they don't meet the policy and what have you. Uh, and and uh, so yeah, we're worried about it. Uh, we have a pretty good vaccination rate. So, you know, uh, um, the amount that we might lose is probably less than some others. But if we lose five, it's still a staffing crisis. Mm -hmm. And where are we going to get the other five people to come in and replace them? And, uh, you know, I understand we, we want, we're here to keep our patients and residents safe and You know, from the data so far, it's shown that the vaccine vaccine does help protect or at least minimize um, how sick somebody gets. Uh, So we're we continue to educate. We continue to talk about we continue to try to to get more of our staff who aren't vaccinated, vaccinated. And, uh, you know, we 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 get some here and there trickle in from time to time. But it's Mm -hmm. it's going to create a staffing crisis. uh, within all of healthcare. And uh, I'm not sure, um, you know, what we're all going to do when that happens.
1: You know, I think we call them unintended consequences. And uh, David, I know that we're in a position here with a vaccination rate of our employees at 60%. Uh, we've been conducting one-to-one meetings over the course of the last week, uh, asking the hard no's, are are they truly hard? Uh, no. And do you have any uh, criteria that would meet either medical or religious if that's allowed? Um, and, you know, we are going to go from a period of time uh, where, you know, healthcare was able to somewhat respond to the pandemic. And to my opinion, it's only going to create such, such, uh, challenges for us here in a rural community, especially because you and I, uh, you know, we can't afford to lose five. I was with, you know, I was at dinner with a big system CEO on last Thursday, and you know they're at ninety percent or whatever vaccination rate, and just a crazy number, uh, high number, and you know they have just thousands of employees, and so to lose a few hundred employees to a system with thousands you know, the bite's not as hard because, right, your bench strength probably is like mine. We don't have 10 executive vice presidents. We don't have all these, you know, these people. So so it's a little easier to absorb and swallow that. But when you or I, we're already sitting right now at probably an 8% vacancy rate right now at a, as a hospital, uh, where we've been for a long time, because like you said, c- competition in the marketplace. Um, you know, we, we tell... St- you know, 21 year olds, yeah, you know, we only pay 14 an hour, but you get great insurance. They look at us and they go, Yeah, I get my mom's insurance. Right. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not interested in insurance. Or Can they're I,
0: relatively healthy and are or willing to take they the don't gamble. think about it.
1: You know, oh, we got a great retirement. We give you three percent. They're not thinking of retirement at twenty-one. Right. You know, so so those are the challenges. But you know, one of the things that we have been advocating for and we're gonna to continue to do it. I want healthcare to be treated like every other workforce under OSHA um, but CMS is going to change that right CMS is going to say you have to get you know vaccinated uh, except for these very narrow uh, you know allowances which is going to be religion and medical medicals going to be covered under ADA religion we don't know yet I mean a counterpart not too far from me got a letter from you know like the Church of Resistance it's called uh, of why you know he needs to exempt somebody but one of the things and and I don't know if you'd agree with this or not and I don't want to put you on the spot but I think in healthcare we need to advocate for the same treatment that other employers are getting right now which is give us the option to test as well because if we were to lose Dave if we were to lose 10 of your staff even five of my own staff, I'm looking at, okay, so I've got a clinic right now in a rural community that has three staff. Okay. They're all unvaccinated and they're all pretty much staying the the, the course of, we're not going to get vaccinated. There goes an entire community program. Right. And, you know, we're, we don't have the luxury to say, all right, take that provider out of the surgery department and move that one around. Mm-hmm. But we're advocating with our congressional leaders to treat us like the other workforce. Let us test. And we know vaccines work. We promote them. You know, we've advocated for them. We've even hardlined them with mandatory for flu. But I think we're, I don't think we've seen the toughest days yet, Dave, uh, no, if this I, I, mandate comes through.
2: Yeah, I would, I would agree. And, and I would agree with you. And the other thing, um, if we lose staff, that means that we won't be able to take care of as many patients here. And when a patient can't find a bed here. We'll have to transport them someplace else, which has two issues. First, the other hospital is probably not going to have any open beds and enough staff. And second, the EMS transportation issue, we can't find uh, EMS agencies to transfer people now out of our ER that are critically sick. And, and so, and they have staffing issues too. So what's do. going to happen, you know?
1: So, so we had someone in our emergency department, uh, about three weeks ago, because that's when we really took our heaviest head, uh, intubated four days, couldn't get them out of the air, yeah. no receiving hospitals around. Our mental health patients, I don't know. We have a mental health unit, but it's usually full. And so we can't get patients out. I mean, they're, they're boarded in the emergency department for days. Now, just imagine complicating that with an overstressed staff and people who are just going to say, you know what, I'm walking, I'm done. You know, I can't take that stress anymore. And so I think the, the toughest days are yet ahead of us. I'm optimistic, though, that we'll have some provisions within both CMS and OSHA that will allow us to have, you know, some testing or some uh, religious uh, preference exclusions. Um, but, you know, yet to be determined, right, David?
2: Right. And uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I'm, I'm optimistic. But then again, uh, if if the rules come down on that on the uh, hard side, we're we're really going to be in trouble. And uh, you know, when you look at it too, the future of healthcare and the future of people going into healthcare. I mean, what young person right now that sees the struggles in healthcare and the struggles with staffing and whatever? What, what, why would they want to go in to be a healthcare provider, a nurse, a, 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 a certified nurse aide? You know, those type of things. I mean, we we have to make. Uh, healthcare look uh, more like a great profession again than, than a struggle.
1: David, they uh, less than a year ago, they were going home living in tents. They were living in campers. I had many of my staff that were staying in their backyard in a tent because they didn't want to infect their their wife or their husband mm. or their family. So, we've gone from, you know, clapping for these as our heroes as they walk out of the hospitals to now saying, "Well, you're essential, but, you know, here's the mandate whether you like it or not." They walk from healthcare, patients suffer. It's really that simple, patients suffer. So thanks, David, for joining us today. It's been great having you on the program. Uh, Obviously very unique up in your rural community. Uh, And I guess there is some you know, some attractiveness of of having the only hospital, right, in your location. You know, competition isn't always maybe necessarily knocking on the door uh, as much as it does in places where it's a stone throw away, Uh, but it comes with its complexities. Uh, The opportunity to to, to have cohorts and the opportunity to have services and specialty area uh, can be a challenge for rural communities. So once again, thanks for joining us today on the program. We've enjoyed having you. Thanks for having me. Well, before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. And I think you're going to probably have a really good one, given your (laughs) rule experience. Um, So what we want to know and what our listeners really like to hear, uh, what is your most unique rule experience or a favorite memory, something surrounding the uniqueness of a rule life?
2: Oh, let's see. I I would think uh, it's probably uh, deer camp related. Um, I thought there'd
1: uh, be a story about deer camp. uh,
2: uh, um, I'm partners in a a deer camp that is a rustic deer camp. There's no running water. There's no um, indoor plumbing. um, There's no electricity. Um, although as we get older, um, those things tend to be looked at a little more and, you know, we now have a generator so we can have electricity when we want it. But, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a unique experience to, to understand, uh, what it's like, uh, you know, for our ancestors to have lived that, that sort of life. And then, uh, you know, I, I, through my association with, uh, Um, the the board on the Michigan Health Association whatever we brought some of the some of the uh, larger health system uh, CEOs up to the rustic deer camp and actually the the former president of the MHA and the current president of the MHA Uh, um, and uh, um, it's a unique experience that you you just can't have any anywhere else and you know the when you, when you, when you get outside at night and there's no city lights around and you can see the stars so, uh, so bright and, uh, you know, you hear the, uh, either the coyotes or the, uh, wolves off in the distance howling, uh, you know, that's a, that's a pretty unique experience that you don't get, uh, you know, in, in urban areas. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't go back on those experiences uh, if I if I uh, had to it's 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 unique and it's uh, it's great to be able to be out, out in the wilderness and and uh, de stress from uh from the hard uh, hard work life that uh, everybody has.
1: No cell service. No that's right no cell
2: service you're right that's, yeah, that that's yeah.
1: a that's a huge one we get up past the bridge I'm like uh we're here again. <laughs> and how did Brian Peters live without Starbucks. That's all I want to know. Yeah, it <laughs> was it was it was interesting, and
2: uh, you know, the, in 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 our deer camp, there's probably eight to ten people that are there, and you know, when you don't have electricity, that means you don't have. The ability to run your CPAP machine, so there's oh. a lot of snoring that goes on. Oh boy, sounds like <laughs> so fun. I think uh, I think Brian uh, didn't get a lot of sleep. But, uh, <laughs> because of
1: Welcome to Rural America. Right. <laughs> oh, that is great. Well, thanks for uh, joining us again today, David. We appreciate your time. Uh, next time on Rule Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with a great guest, so be sure to tune in.
0: And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen, too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising.
1: And you can again find us now on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ Rachel at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong.
0: Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, David John, president and CEO of War Memorial Hospital in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.